you ever said these words? I'll show them. How about, I'm going to settle this score. Or, you're just kind of sitting around waiting and watching for someone to suffer the way that they made you suffer. Or, you're just hoping something bad comes upon them. If you've ever done those things, you know what it's like to seek revenge on someone. Revenge is part of the unforgiveness cycle that we get ourselves caught in sometimes. And whether you find yourself seeking revenge actively or passively, if you find yourself doing that, you are not freed. You have not allowed yourself to be freed from this cycle that we get ourselves caught in. And to talk more about revenge, I want to tell you this story of Samson in my own words and kind of break it down at different points that might make sense to us a little more. So, you know the story of Samson. If you grew up in church, you know the story of Samson. If you didn't grow up in church, it's one of those iconic stories from from our faith and from the Hebrew Scriptures that just kind of are known in culture, right? Like, the main thing we know is something about Samson and Delilah and something about his hair, and he got his hair cut, and that's where his strength came from. We know those parts of the story, but we don't know all of the details leading up to that part, which is actually next in this story. So here's the thing. Samson was born a Nazarite. A Nazarite is somebody who took a vow, an oath before God to, to, to give their lives completely to God in every possible way that they live. So it's similar to um, a vow that a Catholic priest might take to, to live in poverty and never own a single thing, to be completely unpossessed by possessions because they have no possessions. But a Nazarite was to not drink any fruit of the vine. So not only were they to not drink alcohol, they were to not even drink grape juice. No fruit of the vine. A lot of times it's believed that Nazarites were to touch no dead thing. So a fresh donkey's jawbone would have been breaking the oath of a Nazarite, potentially. There's debate around that idea. A Nazarite was to not cut their hair. So we know of another Nazarite in Scripture. The only other one that's really famous is John the Baptist. Remember, John, was, we're told, wore camel's hair. He had long hair. He lived out in the desert. He, what did he eat? Anybody remember? Locusts and honey. That was kind of his staple. It wasn't biscuits and gravy, unfortunately. <clears throat> that got a funny reaction. So Samson was born a Nazarite. His parents took this oath upon him, and he was raised as a Nazarite. We have this idea of him being a big, strong guy, very muscular, probably a chiseled jaw, really good looking, would have, uh, would have probably been a, a defensive end or a linebacker coach. He, he was one of those kinds of guys. He was tough. What's the, what's the phrase? Ladies wanted to be with him and men wanted to be him. That kind of guy. That's who, we're, who we think of when we think of Samson. So Samson, at one point in his late teen years, finds this lady that he thinks is really, really beautiful. And he wants to marry her. The problem is, she's a Philistine. She's outside of his nation, not only outside of his tribe, outside of his nation. 
But because he's Samson, he's able to kind of get whatever he wants. And so he talks to her family, and her family talks to his family, and they work out all the details, and this wedding happens. And he goes with a bunch of guys, we're told in Scripture, for this wedding. He, and they have a crazy, wild, long week of partying. At the end of it, the marriage happens. And then right after that, Samson leaves for some reason to go and do some fighting. And while he's gone, uh, his father-in-law thinks, well, Samson doesn't care about my daughter at all. He left. And so he gives his wife, he gives Samson's wife to another man. And it turns out, in some translations, we're told, we're led to believe that this other man was Samson's best man in the wedding. So how about that? The story just gets weirder and weirder, right? So Samson comes back from doing whatever it was that he felt necessary to go and do right after his wedding. And he comes back with a goat. And he's going to give the goat to his father-in-law. And he says, ah, here's this goat. Now I want to go see my wife in her bedroom. He's, he's basically got one thing on his mind. And the father-in-law says, well, hold up a second. You really can't go in there because your best friend is in there with his wife which was your wife, because you left, and I thought you didn't care about my daughter, so I found this guy who seems like he really cares about her, and they're a great couple, and they got married while you were gone, and so, sorry, Samson, but hey, I've got this other daughter that's really good-looking. You ought to take her instead. Weird. Really weird story, right? Carolyn's looking at me like, I don't like this story. So now Samson's really mad. He's already fought with the Philistines some, and he's taken a little bit of heat for it, and he goes, okay, now here's the thing. Now no one is going to say that I've done anything wrong by getting back at them. I really have a good reason now to not like them. And so what's he do? What's he do? We heard the story. Anybody remember? He does what all of us would do. He goes out and he catches a bunch of foxes. And he ties their tails together. You know, we would do that, right? Actually, the truth is, we would. This is what we've been taught to do from the time we're young children. When somebody harms you, you have a right to get even. It's not just that our parents teach us that. Our society teaches us that. Anybody watch the presidential debates last year? You say something bad about me, guess what? I'm going to say something worse about you. Oh, you say something worse about me? My hands are bigger than your hands. The cycle just continues and continues and continues. You threaten me? I'm coming at you with not threats, with action. So you better shut your mouth. That's what we're taught to do. So yes, we would go and we would catch a bunch of foxes if we lived in this strange time. We would tie their tails together like Samson did, and between the tails we would put torches and we would catch them on fire. And we would do, you know what's the phrase, running around like your something is on fire? Those foxes take off and they run through the fields. The grain fields, they run through the barns, 
They run through the vineyards, all of the things that the Philistines had to make themselves money. Their entire economy collapsed in that moment in an act of economic terrorism. Samson wipes out the economics of this nation. And they're mad. And they come and they say, hey, who did this thing? Who's the terrorist? Who's the one that's going to claim it, right? When terrorism happens, we all just kind of sit back and wait to see who's going to claim it. Who's going to raise their hand and say, it was us. With pride, they do that. Samson doesn't raise his head, but the word gets out that Samson's, the Timnite's son-in-law, Samson did it. And so they go to Samson's father-in-law and daughter and, and wife and burn them to death. This is a brutal, brutal story. Now Samson is in a lot of trouble because now he's mad. It's not just that he has a good excuse, but now he's got a good excuse and he's angry and he's hurt. And as a hurt person, he goes... And he gets ready, and he's hiding out, and they're looking for him. And his people find him, and they say, Samson, stop all of this. Just stop it. What's going on? You can stop this now. What are you doing? Don't you know that the Philistines rule over us? If this continues, look what's going to happen to us. We've come to take you to them, so this can just be over. Then he says, look, I'll let you take me as long as you promise that you're not on their side, that you're just taking me to end this thing. They say, yeah, we promise. We're not going to kill you. We're just going to take you to them. And then whatever they do, that's, that's up to them. So they tie him up and they take him to the people. And they come rushing out, cheering, yelling, hurling things at him probably. And he breaks the bindings on his hands and he picks up a jawbone and he kills a thousand people somehow with a jawbone. That's not the end of the story. The story continues with even more death and destruction. But here's one thing I know about the Bible. It tells us crazy stories that seem like, okay, is this guy a superhero or is he a real person? Like what parts of this are factual and what parts of this are truth that we're to gain something from? What are we supposed to do with this story? The Bible's full of that kind of stuff. Here's another truth about this Bible. It tells us about ourselves. It tells us about who we have been, who we potentially are, and unless John Wesley is right and we're moving on to perfection, who we will continue to be. But I think we hear these stories and we can find lessons in them so that we can begin to change the arc of history. With God's help, we can change. We don't always have to repay harm with harm. See, revenge is one of these things that is handed back and forth, right? So Vern can hand me something. He can harm me in some way. And now I'm holding it. And what we're taught to do is add something to that and then give it back to him. And then Vern holds the thing that he started and, and it's added to and so he's upset, and he's hurt, and he's going to add to it, and he's going to hand it back to me. And then I receive it hurt even more. And it just continues on and on and on. But here's the thing. Nobody can say, if asked, 
What is the hope out of this revenge? What, what are you hoping to have happen? And what's it going to feel like when that is accomplished? Because revenge doesn't accomplish the thing. Have you ever had revenge enacted upon you? Somebody has done something to you out of revenge. You've harmed them, and so they're going to harm you back. Oftentimes we say this, I'm just going to, I'm going to teach them a lesson. How many of you learned the lesson? It doesn't work. Never in my life has somebody done something to me where I said, huh, I learned my lesson. I'm not doing that again. Revenge continues to add to the lie of redemptive violence. The myth and lie of redemptive violence, which is this, that violence can actually end violence. You know, violence doesn't have to be physical. It can be emotional. It can be spiritual. It can be verbal. There's a lot of different ways that we can act in violence toward one another. Violence does not end violence. There's an interesting phrase in the scripture where Samson says, I did to them what they did to me. So Samson is a Messiah figure. In the Hebrew Bible, he's one of the people who they thought at the time was going to be a Messiah that was going to rescue Israel. But he is not the Messiah. And it's interesting to look at the Messiah figures and compare them to the actual Messiah. So Samson says, I did to them what they did to me. Jesus says, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Samson picks up the jawbone and kills a thousand people. Peter takes his sword out and cuts a guy, misses. He's aiming, probably aiming for the person's throat and misses and hits somebody's ear while Jesus is bound up. And Jesus says, hit him again. No. Jesus says, it's on for now. We're getting this on. We're going to do it. I'm the Messiah. We're going to kill everybody. We're going to rescue Israel. No. What's Jesus say to Peter? Put down your sword, Peter. And then Jesus gets even with the soldier who was there arresting him. He gets even. He reaches down and he picks up his ear and he sticks it back on the side of his head and evens the score. Makes things right and even the way that they were. Samson, the story starts with Samson, his wife, his father-in-law, his best friend. Starts with four people. And it ends with a thousand people dying and Samson holding a jawbone that's bloody. Jesus could have done that thing. Peter swinging the sword is what we have been taught to do. 
that our Messiah asks us to go beyond our natural instincts and lean into the presence and Spirit of God and hold the thing. Because if I'm going to forgive someone who harms me, the thing is, I can't return it to them. I have to hold it. And in the holding of it, I'm going to realize that it's hurt people who hurt people. Harmed people harm people. Jesus, on the cross, being murdered, said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. He saw that it is harmed people who harm people, and he found it within himself somehow to forgive those people. He saw them with different eyes. Our prayer is that we can see people with the eyes of God. And when somebody harms us, may we have the presence of mind and the inflowing of the Spirit to hold whatever it is that they've handed to us and to see them as a harmed and hurting person and to eventually be able to drop the thing and forgive them and end the cycle at that moment. I'm not saying it's easy. But this life that Jesus called us to is simple and extremely difficult. It is not for the faint of heart. We oftentimes think, oh man, Christians are so nice and soft and fuzzy. No, Christians do the hardest things possible. Followers of Jesus do hard, hard work. Because what happens when we hold the thing and we recognize that hurt people hurt people and then we drop it, it is finished. It is finished. The cycle is over. No longer do we have to be held captive in it. We are freed for freedom. And the kingdom grows and we recognize the life that really is life. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.